This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters at Patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has tons of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Empire of Borders, The Expansion of the U.S. Border Around the World by Todd Miller. The 21st century has witnessed the rapid hardening of international borders. Security, surveillance, and militarization are widening the chasm between those who travel where they please and those whose movements are restricted. But that is only part of the story. As journalist Todd Miller reveals in Empire of Borders, the nature of U.S. borders has changed. These boundaries have effectively expanded thousands of miles outside of U.S. territory to encircle not simply American land, but Washington's interests. Resources, training, and agents from the United States infiltrate the Caribbean and Central America. They reach across the Canadian border, and they go even farther afield, enforcing the division between Global South and North The highly publicized focus on a wall between the United States and Mexico misses the bigger picture of strengthening border enforcement around the world. Empire of Borders is a tremendous work of narrative investigative journalism that traces the rise of this border regime. It delves into the practice of extreme vetting, which raised the possibility of ideological tests, and cyber-policing for migrants and visitors, a level of scrutiny that threatens fundamental freedoms and allows, once again, for America's security concerns to infringe upon the sovereign rights of other nations. In Syria, Guatemala, Kenya, Palestine, Mexico, the Philippines, and elsewhere, Miller finds that borders aren't making the world safe. They are the front line in a global war against the poor. Empire of Borders, The Expansion of the U.S. Border Around the World, by Todd Miller. Out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Even those of us who most passionately believe that Kamala Harris is indeed a cop were blown away by her attack on Joe Biden over school busing, a meticulous skewering of the former vice president for his shameful track record of resisting school integration. Biden, however, is far from an anomaly. And the attacks on school integration that exploded in the 1970s were not limited to racist, urban, working-class white ethnics. Indeed, the notion that racism is just the bad, poor white people with hatred in their hearts and ignorance in their minds is a self-serving one for affluent, liberal suburbanites whose entire way of life is premised on massive segregation and the semi-privatization of public services. My guest today is Lily Geismer, the author of Don't Blame Us, Suburban Liberals and the Transformation of the Democratic Party. It's an incredible work analyzing the rise of neoliberalism in Boston's Route 128 suburbs. While Boston whites erupted in racist reaction, suburban liberals maintained 
and benefited from the larger system of metropolitan residential and school segregation that made the crisis possible. Suburban liberals also played a key role in creating a new Democratic Party that embraced a superficial politics of recognition while advancing a technocratic, elite-driven, neoliberal agenda that included the demonization and persecution of poor black mothers on welfare and mass incarceration. Geismer writes, quote, The narrative of the Massachusetts liberal has widely obscured that the real transformation of the Democratic Party and national politics has not been a geographic shift away from the Northeast toward the Sun Belt, but rather a power shift away from urban ethnics and labor unions to suburban knowledge professionals and high-tech corporations. The Massachusetts liberal slur is, in other words, an enduring and powerful mystification that renders a bipartisan class war invisible. Soon, I'll be interviewing historian Matthew Lassiter, author of The Silent Majority, Suburban Politics in the Sunbelt South, to tell the conservative side of this post-war suburban history. Together, they explain a political realignment that was driven by elite economic interests in both major parties. Before we get rolling, I can't tell you how much it means to me that so many of you make this podcast possible by contributing at patreon.com slash the dig. If you're not contributing yet, please know that the dig is overwhelmingly listener supported. We are a Jacobin podcast, but what you might not know is that we are completely separate entities financially. And so we need your support to not only continue paying me, but also my producer and our communications coordinator and for web hosting and for paying producers to stand next to my guests and record them on the other end of the phone line, whether they're in Hong Kong or California, and most recently for transcribing new episodes in the archives so that everyone can access the show. What's most important is that we provide the show for free to everyone, because those of you listeners who can afford to support us do so. We also, however, offer tokens of gratitude. People who donate at least $10 a month get one left-wing book in the mail. If you donate 20 or more, you get many left-wing books, including Capital City by Samuel Stein, The ABCs of Socialism, Mistaken Identity, and Feminism for the 99%. So, if you love this show and haven't contributed yet, please do so now at patreon.com slash the dig. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Okay, thank you. Here's Lily Geismer, a professor of history at Claremont McKenna College, whose research and teaching focus on U.S. 20th century urban and political history, especially liberalism. She is the author of Don't Blame Us, Suburban Liberals and the Transformation of the Democratic Party, and is currently working on a book entitled Doing Good, How Market-Based Thinking Took Over the Democratic Party. Lily Geismer, welcome to The Dig. Thanks so much for having me. When I think about 
suburban politics, the stories that typically come to mind are about right-wing reaction in places like Orange County, California. But you studied one of the most famous affluent liberal suburban areas in the country, Boston's western suburbs along Route 128. And in short, what the history makes clear is that conservative and liberal suburbs are more similar than they might appear because more or less they they have a shared allegiance to the same class project. You write, quote, the factors that transcend both regional and partisan divisions and that are symptomatic of a larger suburban political ethos predicated on low taxes, high property values, quality education, and the security and safety of children. To start things off, what is this shared suburban ideology? And how does the conventional red-blue partisan affiliation model that dominates conventional wisdom obscure it? Well, one of the things that I was really trying to do in my book is to challenge this notion of the suburbs as automatically kind of conservative places. And um, particularly when I started the project, there was a real emphasis on kind of the story of Orange County as this the kind of incubator of the the rise of the right. And I started to think about how a lot of the same factors that fueled grassroots new right activism in places like Orange County in the 1960s also contributed to suburban liberal politics as well. And so that was a sort of core set of, set of questions that um, especially kind of the role of homeownership and the politics that surround homeownership and the rise of the Cold War defense industry were key factors um, in fueling suburbanization everywhere and then also leading to kind of a suburban uh, politics. The birthplace of Goldwaterism, Nixonism, Reaganism, it turns out, aren't, aren't so different from where Michael Dukakis is from. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, there are there are fundamental differences, but I think that it speaks to a broad some of the broader problems of kind of understanding politics through a red blue lens that you miss a lot of places of similarities. And I I really do think sort of suburban politics become a place to kind of think about these larger questions about shared class interest and that that role in kind of in shaping politics. Your argument reminds me of Marx's 18th Brumaire with a with a twist. We, we look for political differences often in the realm of, of principle and articulated politics when commonalities are often right there, hidden underneath, just rooted in the material conditions. Absolutely. I think that that's a really important component to it and sort of understanding and looking to the kind of material realities of, of suburban residents is really important to kind of thinking about some of those, um, some of those issues, and to me, that, that suburban residents are embodiments of a lot of these figures. I always tell my students that, like, I didn't start this project because of some like love of the suburbs. Like, I didn't want to go, <laughs> I didn't want to go like hang out at the mall or something. But, um, but that I was that it was to me, it was a kind of the larger questions I had about political realignment and also about about the ways that political economy operates. That suburban residents are a really powerful way to understand those issues. And I should also say the other kind of core thing that I wanted to get at in the book was a question of rethinking liberalism to some degree. And so when I was beginning to work on it, there was a large sense that sort of liberalism had died after 1968. And one of the questions that I had is that it didn't seem like it had it had died. It seemed like it's sort of it, the question, it, it had sort of transformed. The real thing that, that I was trying to track was a kind of 
reorientation at the base of the Democratic Party away from its traditional urban working class labor, union labor base, towards the, a more knowledge worker suburban base as kind of those those are the, the, the figures who sort of have become become the base of the party and sort of what that meant about the, the Democratic Party's larger priorities. I want to get into tons of detail, but first we should pause and step back and talk a little bit about the Route 128 suburbs and how they fit into the larger Boston metro. The material basis for the growth in the suburbs is that Boston, the Boston area in general and MIT in particular, received a huge infusion of federal defense dollars, which is, is another thing it has in common with many conservative Sunbelt suburbs. 128 was built, you write, quote, by the pro-growth agenda of New Deal liberalism and the Cold War military-industrial complex. Meanwhile, in the city of Boston, there's this incredible concentration of the black population in a small number of neighborhoods like Roxbury and North Dorchester. And then at the same time, suburbanization made the population of white neighborhoods in Charlestown or South Boston poorer white neighborhoods, which, you write, made them also more insular and reactionary. Explain this history and how government spending, not only on defense, but also highways and support for mortgages, how that all helped create this geography segregated along newly intensified lines of race and class. Yeah, so a combination of factors that kind of reshape the American metropolis more broadly and then in the New Deal post-war era become really personified and exacerbated in Boston. And that's one thing that I also sort of argue in my in my book, which is that there's often this notion of, of Boston and Massachusetts as being exceptional. And they they're actually a great way to understand a lot of these these larger processes. So a set of different factors come come together to make Boston a profoundly segregated city in the post-war era. And the one of the the big ones, as as you referenced, is this huge influx of Cold War military spending. So we often think of that as kind of concentrated in in um, some belt regions like Atlanta or in Orange County, um, also in places like Silicon Valley. Um, although that's a slightly later story, but the but MIT and Harvard became the were the largest beneficiaries of research and defense spending, and that help to perpetuate, to sort of move in a, a huge new types of industry. It also, a lot of the research and defense money went into um, not just to the, the universities themselves, but just spawning off new types of um, industries, or, or what we now call kind of startups. And they all moved to, because there wasn't enough space in Boston and Cambridge, to this newly created highway um, along the, along the outer edge of the city, which is called which was known as Route 128. So that it was initially shifted. called the the highway to nowhere. The highway to nowhere because it's actually not it's a it's a semicircle. So um so it's it has a sort of strange thing, and then it got renamed like America's Technology Highway. There was a, a a large amount of all of that industry kind of moved out, but that also moved out both that industry and tax dollars to the periphery. Um, of the city. So it's outside of the city of Boston itself. And then that also meant that a lot of people, um, people who worked in these new jobs, um, largely the sort of knowledge workers, um, engineers, often wanted to live closer to their job, to with closer proximity to their jobs. So it's a factor in fueling um, suburbanization. And that coincides with the rise of um, New Deal housing policy, which helped to kind of um, incentivize 
white white middle class people to purchase houses in the suburbs rather than in the city. So Boston has a huge sort of out migration of its white popu- of its white uh, middle class population in the 1950s. And the other component of this is that you have and then that leads to kind of a hyper segregation of its African American population. And Boston didn't experience the same great migration or the same kind of uh, that places like Chicago or Detroit had. Um, so it actually had a smaller um, African-American population than many of those other than other major cities, but they was, it was highly, highly segregated. And as you mentioned, too, many of the white population who did stay were more working class and, uh, and fueled a kind of insularity. Um, and hostility from this kind of larger pro- from some of these larger processes. The city of Boston, generally, I mean, is a very um, ethnic. En- it had a tradition of having already defined ethnic enclaves, um, so these like sort of very bounded neighborhoods, and that um, that also sort of fueled some of that kind of sense of sort of um, of um, interest segregation within the city. In terms of the the suburbs, this this economic transformation that took place was often credited to so-called Yankee ingenuity, which, again, is, is not so different from the general sense that affluent suburbanites everywhere have, that their status in life is the sole product of their own talent and hard work. And this, you write, had ideological roots in the New Deal and even in the progressive era, this, this technocratic vision that prioritized the role of brilliant, highly trained solvers of problems. Explain this ideological lineage, and how the suburbs built environment was the material basis not only for the organization of metro level inequality, but also for this very particular sort of individualist ideology. Well, I think built built into kind of the his the longer history of of liberal twentieth century liberalism is this profound kind of individualist component. And I think that works in a couple of different ways. Um, I think that so one one aspect of that is this highly sort of technocratic, and then that leads into kind of a meritocratic view that knowledge is the way this path to success, and that that sort of the the best and the brightest rise up, and that sort of explains your um, your higher kind of social status. I also think I don't I shouldn't say think. Um, it's also been <laughs> it's been widely proven that um, that into that built into kind of New Deal policy were a lot of kind of a lot of the programs were were such to kind of encourage white middle class people to think in more individualist rather than collective terms. Um, so that works in a couple of different ways. One is that a lot of those kinds of professionalized that the kind of professionalized work and technocratic ideas are much more individually driven than kind of a, a view of kind of a collective sort of a collective or or kind of a union based view of working working together. It's about you yourself and your individual talent. The other part of that is that a lot of the programs built into this notion of, of individual rights, and that leads to a particular view of kind of of home ownership, which in sort of and single family home ownership, that has to do with with this notion of individualism, that comes to really play itself out in kind of um, in suburban life in the post war era. I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, but it, it, it's so ironic because it's the the New Deal whether in liberal or conservative suburbs, really creating the material foundations for its own ultimate destruction. Yeah. I mean, that's, I think that's one of the, the fascinating things about the New Deal. And that's, um, there's a famous book called The End of Reform by Alan Brinkley. And, and also, as does Tom, Tom Segrew in The Origins of the Urban Crisis, yes. but that New Deal liberalism really sowed the seeds to its own demise. And I think, the, I mean, that's one of the fascinating things I think about 
we we often look back to the New Deal it was nostalgia, and I think it's really important to understand that I never want to sort of make this point enough, but its role in kind of fueling many many different forms of structural inequality that the, the United States is very much still living with today. One point you make along these lines is that it wasn't just the literal physical remove of the suburbs, but really perhaps even more so the remove of government. The the fact that these homogeneously white and well-to-do towns each had their own municipal government was key. They believed that their neighborhoods and municipalities and community, as we discussed, were the result of freely made individual choices and the product of merit-based achievement. And then, relatedly, they became accustomed to their taxpayer dollars paying for services like schools, provided by their municipal government. Explain how the segregated and fragmented organization of taxation and service provision naturalized this semi-privatization of public services and, and what the consequences were. Yeah. I th- well, I think that this is something that plays out nationally, but you can see it particularly in New England, which has this really strong tradition of localism. And in a lot of these communities, the kind of knowledge workers that I was looking at moved to, um, they also take steps within the nineteen uh, the nineteen fifties to really, really consolidate their local power and local control. One of the biggest ones is through zoning policies. So that's the other thing that I, I mean, I and I think as a side diatribe, there's been a lot of discussion about things like redlining, and I think that, which is fundamentally important, but I do think that one of the things that's not always looked at is the power of exclusionary zoning in producing the segregated and unequal metropolis. And Boston is an is an incredible case study for understanding that process. So all of these communities in the 1950s that I look at pass highly, highly exclusionary zoning policies. Things like one, you had to have a one acre minimum for your um, on a plot of <laughs> land on a with and you couldn't on a with a single family home. So that basically means that the only people who could move there were people who had the ability to purchase a single family home on on a minimum of a one acre plot of land. Who needs restrictive covenants when you have lot size minimums? Absolutely. I mean, that is, I think that that's absolutely, absolutely what, um, what that becomes the evolution of those kinds of policies. And the other component of that becomes that also sort of decisions about local power to put a lot of money into things like, um, into, you know, allowing for an increase in tax rates that will, will benefit schools. And so another thing about all the communities that I study, they all are places that had a tradition of having excellent public education. So you have residents who are willing to pay more in property, to, um, both in, um, in, their, for their, in their property tax rates for higher education, but that becomes really exclusive. So that becomes about your, like something about your community and something you are paying for um, by virtue of living there that I think sort of helps to kind of maintain this particular kind of um, exclusive attitude. I want to talk about how liberals, suburban liberals, made sense of the segregated order that they benefited from and maintained. Because if the system was was meritocratic, then it couldn't really be systematically racist. But but these were anti-racist liberals. And so they had to have some account, however self-serving, of the root causes of black people's plight. And that account, you write, was that racism became viewed as a matter of, quote, personal prejudice and moral deficiencies rather than public policy or the directives of the market. The solutions then were about ensuring that individuals and their families had had equal opportunity. Explain this, this vision, how it took shape, and what it obscured. Well, I think that – so 
a key component of if you believe in a meritocratic worldview is a belief in opportunity and that everyone should be able to have those kinds of the same kinds of opportunities. And that's something that you see very much playing out amongst the kind of suburban liberals I study. I think you can also see it in the kind of ethos of Silicon Valley today. But that kind of notion was that that people are being restricted from having an opportunity to participate. So thinking about in those terms um, is also that, that there need to be laws passed that allow for everyone to have the same kinds of rights. So the suburban liberal activists I look at were at the forefront. I mean, so, so this, the communities I look at were at the forefront of a really active fair housing movement, um, that everyone should have the right to live in the suburbs. That becomes a component of it. And I do think there's also a sense that Racism, as you said, is a kind of is a moral or individual failing. This was a really powerful idea in the post-war era, based in kind of these kind of ideas of racial liberalism, and so that you could convince people um, to change their attitudes. So that was another huge component of the kind of suburban liberal activist movement. But as you said, it obscures the kind of other the the other types of factors and the sort of more systemic factors that lead to housing segregation. So there's this really, it's, I mean, and and I don't want to discount and and it's incredible the kind of outpouring. So all of the suburbs I studied um, had fair housing committees that um, with, I think in Lexington, one of the towns that had close to a thousand members, a lot of their, what they were doing was sort of having their neighbors sign pledges um, saying that they would, they would sell their houses to to an African American, or they wouldn't object if an African American moved um, moved into their communities. They also did things like helped at affirmatively help people move into their neighborhoods with the, with these types of things. But it was primarily middle class African Americans. So it was that everyone who can afford to move into their neighborhoods um, should have the right to do so. Not trying to take steps to sort of um, change things like exclusionary zoning policy, like their exclusionary zoning policies that should do it. And that becomes a kind of core component of how the kind of suburban liberal view of racial equality comes to operate. So in the very same communities that in the early 1960s were at the forefront of kind of fighting for fair housing, they had really fierce battles when it when it turned to kind of building affordable housing in their in their suburbs. Um, so it's one thing if you want to kind of help someone who can afford to move into their neighborhood come in, but it's another if it's like let's let's try to to do things to address the class inequality that exists here. Yeah, you- you write that the number of, of Black people they assisted in moving in was incredibly small and really insignificant on a sociological scale. And you quote the, the Fair Housing Practices Committee in the town of Belmont, which defended a, Har- a Black Harvard dean's attempt to move in on the grounds that the neighborhood, quote, suited his intellectual and financial position. In Lexington, the Civil Rights Committee circulated a flyer that described their goal as to, quote, make it possible for every one of Lexington's neighbors to view a prospective neighbor not as a Negro, but as a doctor, engineer, or businessman. How did the open housing movement in Boston's western suburbs take root? And and did they at all take stock of or confront this bigger issue of systematic segregation? Well, the, the movement, and I do want to say that one of the things that's really important to remember, and this was this was actually like the that I wanted to kind of emphasize is that there was an outpouring of of suburban liberal activism. And I think the fair housing movement becomes a really powerful example of that. Um, and um, a lot of the movement actually emerged out of churches and other kinds of people who'd recently church, churches become a core component of it. But really what it was was that a lot of people who moved to the suburbs who had kind of liberal leanings, um, particularly suburban housewives who were college educated, were looking for were sort of 
I hate to use this, but bored um, and wanted <laughs> to find community. And they they found it through this movement. So there's a huge amount of kind of grassroots activity that emer- that comes together. Um, and I think it becomes a way that a lot of people met each other and really forged this kind of this new type of movement. And it was both at the local level, and then it became part of a kind of larger coalition amongst the different suburbs who did work together to kind of um, to pass this uh, uh, fair housing law. So Massachusetts had the most kind of far-reaching fair housing law that the these this community worked to pass, this the group of activists worked to pass um, in, in the 1960s. Which does contrast, just as a quick aside, to the California conservative suburbanites who successfully passed an anti-open housing law. Yeah, the, the next year. And I think that that's one of the things to say is that it's not just that the suburban act, the same, the same kind of factors that led to kind of fuel that type of activism. You can see the, the, the exact same thing happening in, as a counterpoint. But I think that there, um, this kind of focus on individual rights and individual opportunity obscured thinking about, about larger systems and larger structures. And I should say that I think that there were people involved in the movement who did probably recognize that. And for that for some people, this was just the first step. So they took a kind of pragmatic approach, some of the more kind of, I would say, sort of left-leaning or radical of the activists. But that I think the other part is that it really did fit in with this the, the suburban worldview. It sort of aligns with the kind of values of, of suburban residents. And so that becomes a kind of fundamental constraint on the possibilities of what um, of recognizing some of these larger um, these larger systems or challenging those larger systems. And so I think that there was an acknowledgement, Subsequently, I mean, there's there's a huge amount of activity that goes into um, trying to kind of make suburbs more open, but that it ultimately helped a handful of people. So it's symbolically significant um, that that they were able to do that at all, but that it didn't actually have the kind of impact that of of sort of large of changing these larger structures. Housing segregation, of course, is at the root of school segregation, and Boston, of course, was was the site of an intensely violent busing conflict. And busing has been in the news a lot recently, thanks to Kamala Harris eviscerating Joe Biden. Before we get further, I want to talk a lot about busing, but before we get into details, lay out the basic storyline of the Boston busing crisis, the Boston School Committee's racist resistance, the federal court order, and how it all took shape and how it became the center of the national debate. Boston earns a reputation in the 1970s as the Little Rock of the North and the most racist city in America for its violent opposition to court-ordered desegregation. So this is the 1970s, but it's a much longer story. Um, So it doesn't just suddenly appear in the 1970s. African-American activists had been fighting against the really harsh segregation of schools in the in Boston um, beginning in the 1950s. And one of the things that happened because of the kind of that processes of sort of of uh, metropolitan change that had occurred in the 50s as the communities became more as Boston itself became more segregated there was also a deliberate segregate d- deliberate segregation and inequality of the public schools and so the Boston I mean Boston is has a long tradition of Irish politicians many of whom had a kind of reputation of being quite racist um, who were and many of them were on the Boston School Committee so they took actually very deliberate steps to make the African-American schools much more underfunded, overcrowded. Um, and activists were fighting this and actually and led to a, like a had let staged a stay out two different stayouts of the schools um, in the early 1960s. And so that is kind of continuing to go on to goes on. The the larger story of the kind of 
leading to the busing crisis. They finally, in the early 1970s, file a federal case against the Boston School of African-American activists, um, file a federal case against against the school committee. The, then the case is called Morgan v. Hannigan. And the case, it's it's filed and argued in the, in the early 1970s. It goes to a judge named Judge Garrity, who takes about two years to, to, make his, to make his ruling. And he issues a ruling in the spring of 1974, or it's June of 1974, um, it's a 152-page ruling that um, – I might be wrong on the number, but it's sort of like around 150 pages. So I'll just go with 152 sounds good. Um, but the um, the <laughs> it's a really long ruling, um, basically, which is like much longer than other places, laying out how the Boston schools have been systemically segregated. One of the things that happens that – I find this a sort of strange component of the way that um, federal court cases and busing cases or desegregation cases worked is the judge also had to come up with a remedy. So he'd spent a lot of time thinking of looking at the legal case and he made a really, really airtight legal argument about how the schools were segregated. The remedy he came up with Actually, it came from the Massachusetts um, State Board of Education, but was a kind of very sort of um, harshly put together. So basically, they looked at a map and just basically took all white and all black areas and put them together. They were going to bus with two, a two-way busing program between them. His ruling was in June, and the schools, you know, were supposed to open in September. So it all had to happen really quickly. And one of the things was that, like, it, the case, the people who came up with the the remedy coupled with the judge, Judge Garrity, didn't live in the city of Boston. They all lived in the suburbs, um, and they didn't really have an intimate understanding of um, the dynamics of the local communities. What their decision did, the the most sort of extreme one, is it took the all-African-American area of Roxbury uh, High School and matched it with um, South Boston, which is a very sort of um, white, working-class Irish community. And what that did, um, uh, both leading up and then the first day of school, was like a sort of profound, um, led to profound violence. And so this kind of, th- that was sort of the, the sort of culmination, which were, this, which were all the pictures on the news, um, people throwing things at buses, throwing things at buses, and it, it culminates in the famous um, soiling of old glory picture of the white um, high school students trying to pierce um, an African-American man with an American flag that kind of became the symbol of, of Boston's racism in the 1970s. You quote a white student from Southie transferred to Roxbury High who said, quote, why should I be discriminated against because I live in South Boston and not in Newton or Wellesley or any other rich suburban town who do not want the black people of Boston living in their towns or going to their schools? And the judge, Judge Garrity, presiding over the case, lived in Wellesley, which became iconic of liberal suburban white hypocrisy. How did metropolitan class and race segregation shape the busing conflict in terms of both its deep structure and also the politics of how it played out? And what does that say about how the politics of more overt de jure segregation relate to the more invisibilized politics of de facto segregation? so-called de facto segregation. Yeah, I mean, so I would say, first of all, like there's little distinction between de facto and de jure segregation because de jure segregation also, or de facto segregation also happened by law. But I think that you, you know, the quintessential examples of segregation that you you think of as from the 1950s, I guess a slightly different case study than what you see playing out in Boston. I think one of the things that, and the quote you read from, captures, and I think is often not always thought about, but is the, the severe the class dynamics that were occurring and the spatial dynamics. And a real frustration 
on the part of, I think, both the African-American and working class white community in Boston, but particularly the working class white community, that they were the people who had to bear out the remedy it, that this decision sort of they, like it was it was on them and all these other places were kind of exempted from it. So the suburbs who had who had produced the problem in large part by leading to metropolitan segregation weren't at all involved in the solution towards it to it. And that only kind of heightened the animosity and frustration with the decision. And I should say, I mean, I think I think there's a lot rightfully so a lot of that frustration was um, – and I think that it was a moment too. I mean the other thing that that was going on in the early 1970s, I mean this was a moment of, of um, profound economic recession in which Boston – hit Boston tremendously hard. So you have a lot of people who were really, really struggling who that this became sort of one more thing that led to this kind of um, – the, the types of kind of violence that, that, that we're seeing. Amidst the Boston busing crisis, the Supreme Court – handed down one of its most reactionary decisions ever in Milliken v. Bradley, which struck down a metro-wide busing remedy that would have included Detroit suburbs. What impact did Milliken have in Boston and on the fight over school integration more generally? And what did Milliken reveal about the post-civil rights era approach to racism that was taking shape at the time? Well, I think so. Milliken come the Milliken decision was like came out a couple weeks after the decision in Boston, and it's kind of a, it's an amazing case actually. The in Detroit, a judge, a federal judge, had ruled that the remedy to school segregation was for Detroit to do a two way busing program between the city and then f- about forty of its sub- suburban communities, um, and that was the only way to kind of to equalize um, and and create uh, racial integration. And it went to the Supreme Court and in this five four five to four decision. They they ruled against that, um, and they said that you could only do busing at a district wide level. And so what that did, um, especially in um, in northern communities where the suburban areas were not part of the larger district, it meant that suburbs could not be part of mandatorily part of any remedy to to address um, segregation, school segregation. So I think that that had, I mean it had a, it has a deep effect nationally. And kind of is seen as the kind of endpoint in the cases around um, around bus around what happens in busing. I should say, I mean, they're part of this is in in a lot of southern and western um, municipal or cities, um, their suburbs were, were part of their um, their school districts, and so they had to include the so suburbs had to be included in the in the remedies. Um, and so you see very different things play out within within those communities that you see happen in in um, in northern communities in the 1970s. Places like Louisville, Louisville, and then also Charlotte. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 Los Angeles too, but this this is sort of what the, the what happens in places like Boston or Detroit or New York. It becomes that they don't their their suburban areas do not have to be part of their um about part of their solutions. In Boston, so the case was going to went through two rounds, and there was still held out the possibility for a metropolitan remedy, um, and that doesn't happen. And I think one of the other things is you see a you see a persistent in the 1970s um, and 1980s, even more whites who with means leaving leaving the city of Boston. So the idea is that if you if you really oppose going to an integrated school, that you could just sort of jump district lines. And then you could be in an all-white, um, an all-white suburb. Also, a rise in um, parochial school um, enrollment happens. Um, so it sort of only exacerbates um, the kind of the types of segregation that was happening within the Boston schools. I mean, I think what you see 
the viewpoint, the decision actually embodies this attitude of kind of a faith and integration, but not the remedy such to make that happen. And I think that that's actually one of the things that has been sort of in this recent discussion, this resurgence of the discussion around busing um, has come up because that's very much Joe Biden's viewpoint was like, I believe in integration, but I don't believe in um, in such the remedies that would produce it. Um, and so people like Richard Nixon, that was also at the forefront of his kind of attitude throughout the sort of busing crises of the late 1960s and early 1970s. You know, the thing that I've thought a lot about, the, and this goes back to your other question about kind of, I guess, the long-term components of, of this, and then also thinking about kind of metropolitan inequality and how, what busing, what it represents about, about what busing represents about that. To me, one of the questions I've often thought about is that all the suburban liberals that I study and suburban residents more broadly, like, is what they is their involvement in the busing crisis any worse than um, the whites in Boston who like threw rocks at a like at the buses? That they're equally complicit in the process that that happened, um, and and that like just because they weren't out throwing rocks, that they by by virtue of um, of making a lot of choices and benefiting from a lot of a system that allowed for this kind of conflict to take place and the need for busing in the first place are equally involved and um, and should be kind of held accountable in various different ways, but took a stance that sort of further evaded them from any kind of responsibility. Let's talk about th- th- that stance because white middle-class suburbs in Boston did have a, a busing program. It was voluntary and just one way. It was sending busing black youths from the city to suburban schools, but not the other way around. Explain the the Metropolitan Council for for edu- educational opportunity or or Metco. Sure. So Metco starts actually eight years before the busing crisis happens, um, and it was this, which I didn't realize until I started doing research for this. Um, I thought it was a kind of outgrowth of the busing crisis, but it's actually it's, it predates it, um, and it was actually created through a coalition of the white suburban liberals that I study, actually many of them who are involved in the fair housing movement, and African-American activists to create a one-way voluntary busing program that would take African-American kids from Boston and bus them in into suburban areas. Um, it started in 1966. It proved actually incredibly popular in suburban areas. So it starts out with um, seven suburbs and expands by the early 1970s to have about 30 suburbs. One of the things that people, the residents in in the suburbs it's like it's sort of surprising given all the kind of what we know about busing really liked about it was that it was voluntary so they didn't have to be part of it if they didn't want to um it was one way so it was only it was only um a, a handful of kids from boston so it's like about the idea was to have one or two kids in each classroom um if that and then the other thing is it was state it, they didn't have to pay for it it was state funded and the other so that that it kind of seemed like there was a li- they had to make very limited if none no sacrifice um, to be to participate and then the other thing that was really appealing is the way it was presented in a lot of suburban areas was the idea that this was good for white children to be around African American children so this was to help to sort of you quote Newton's school superintendent arguing that suburban students were quote deprived of realistic contact with other parts of society. Yeah, I mean, this is this idea that kind of that we're, we're we're actually disadvantaging our white children by not having them be exposed <laughs> to um, to um, children of color, and that like this will be kind of preparing them for the multiracial world of the future. And so this is, I mean, it's it's a really early argument of or case that you sort of see it being made for why affirmative action 
is to the case for affirmative action, then it's sort of this this like, the diversity argument that like it's good for white kids around um, different kinds of, of people. Um, but that really sold. And so um, it became this another kind of advantage, this sort of notion that it's another advantage that um, white suburban parents were giving to their children. And so it was it was a very popular program. I mean, I think some of the things is that it like the other side of this is that there was little there was little um, hardship on the white people involved in the program. There was a lot on the African-American students who participated. I mean, they had to leave. They had to leave their own neighborhoods. Um, they started out and it goes, you have to, when you enter Mecco, it's like you're going to be part of it from K to 12. Um, so you have to go out of your own neighborhood, um, often to getting on a bus really early in the morning and going far out to a sort of suburban privileged community. So you, and the whole program was set up that you were meant to feel guest in this, in your, in these suburban areas. Um, and so it's sort of being a guest for, you know, your entire sort of educational experience. But the program was really pop was really popular. It still is really popular. And I can talk about that more later. But one of the things that happens is during the busing crisis, um, a lot of suburban communities are really horrified by the busing crisis and they want to do more. And so there's an effort to kind of think about expanding Metco and that Metco could be a way of kind of of kind of helping out. But this coincides with the recession and the state of Massachusetts was going through a severe budget crisis and they couldn't afford to pay for the expansion. So communities fought tooth and nail against the expansion of, of the Metco program, especially the suburb of Newton, which is often kind of this class, very seen as kind of perhaps the most liberal of the kind of um, Route 128 suburbs. Barney Frank's district. Barney Frank's, yeah, absolutely. So so one of the things that happens in, in Newton is that they are going to have to, it's going to be to bring in more students. I mean, Newton already had the biggest of the METCO programs, like I think about 200 students, but that it was going to cost, it was going to be a raise of the ta- of the local tax, um, tax rate of about a dollar, and um, people refused <laughs> to do it. Um, and so I got, yeah, I mean, it's like, it's, it's like minimal, minimal amounts of money, but the, um, and so finally the state, um, and met, and then Newton threatened to cut the program altogether. Um, so Newton, um, eventually this, the, um, Mike, Mike Dukakis steps in, um, and funds an emergency, puts an emergency stopgap measure, but METCO is it at what this, what it effectively did was freeze the program. So it's never really grown substantially since the 1970s. It's still in existence. It's still it's still very popular within suburban communities. It, I shall say that that um, it's actually become even more popular among um, among um, people in co- of color of Boston. Um, the waitlist of Metco is thousands and thousands of of people um, long. Most parents put their kids in the waitlist when before they're a year old, wow. um, and so. But it's it's maintained a really small solution and. I should just say about I find Mecco like endlessly interesting, but one of the things that actually has come out with all the kind of um, discussions of busing is there's been an attention to to Mecco because it is the longest voluntary busing program that exists. It's actually one of the few busing programs now that still exists in the United States. And Jonathan Kozel recently had a piece um, in the Nation, sort of sort of celebrating Mecco as this um, this wonder this sort of wonderful benefits of busing, and I just think it's a lot more complicated. Um, And the dynamics of it are are really, really complicated. So to me, I think about the fact that like, is it Mecco or nothing? (laughs) And then the other possibility is what is having programs like Mecco or this goes to fair housing too. What does that prevent or what does that enable kind of um, suburban people um, not to have to confront? I want to talk about just that in a second. But first, you mentioned that demand amongst people of color has has risen. And but an important point that you make is that black participants by and large, did not participate in Medco 
so much because they wanted that that feel good diversity that was what sold it to white suburbanites, but because they wanted access to the educational resources that segregation had systematically denied them. Yeah, I think it was not, this was not about for, I mean, I would say the vast majority of African Americans who were involved was this idea that they wanted to kind of, their, their primary motivation was like in a belief of in- integration, but it was about that it was an, a way to get access to superior educational resources. And I think that's still the, the that is still the motivating factor for, for the vast majority of parents of, and students of color who, who are involved in METCO. METCO is a much higher um, college graduation rate than the Boston public schools. It has a really high rate of students who go who are participate in the program who go on to college. Um, but one of the things I always find is that um, students who the studies they've done on students who are involved in Metco, um, and there are a lot of them, that they don't actually seek out integrated spaces subsequently, and most of them don't move to white. They don't make don't move to white suburbs. Um, so they that, that sort of in their later parts of their life actually seek out communities of color, um, such to, to to be part of. Wow. In terms of the another point you were just making, the in terms of the pernicious effects that this program for all of the complicated good it can do for individuals, the pernicious effects that it has on on white liberal suburbanite politics, you write that this tepid, self-serving approach to integration not only didn't help very much or help that many people and certainly didn't help systematically, but also ideologically reaffirmed the very order they supposedly hope to attenuate through this narrow definition of racism as as bad people with racist ideas in their head. You write, quote, Medco did not force the vast majority of suburbanites to acknowledge the systematic problems that had produced school segregation and their own role in that process. Instead, by providing residents in the suburban municipalities that participated with a means to distinguish themselves as more open-minded than whites in the South or South Boston, it made them even less willing to consider more comprehensive solutions to the interrelated issues of residential segregation and educational inequity. I think this is a really important and powerful argument, more relevant today than ever with Trump in office. Can you say more about how this function in Boston, how it functions more generally now, even this narrow definition of racism as a problem of like the white underclass that invisibilizes the structural racism inherent to the class power of, of elites, regardless of, of their partisan affiliation? Yeah. I mean, I think of this in the terms of this notions of class blindness. Um, and so these ideas that kind of that blaming, so only seeing working class whites or whites in the South as racist enables kind of excusing of the other ways that um, that racial inequality operates. And I think that there is this very, very much, I mean, one of the things that I think it does is forces a kind of lack of thinking about collective response, collective or individual responsibility, but also thinking about the past. I mean, that this is that there's a there's a kind of longstanding this is rooted in historical processes and factors, and that that's really the driving force and kind of producing racial inequality, racial inequality, racial segregation, and only thinking about it as a kind of present day or future sort of. Let's only think about the future. I think that there's a one of the things that I do think has happened, um, you know, and to sort of fast forward to the to Trump is that I mean I think in some ways not 
not actually coming to terms with some of these questions only makes them sort of reemerge and reconstitute themselves. The second presidential, this what is I don't even know the second two two whatever it was. Oh like god, the it's really night, confusing. <laughs> um, it's like two a or whatever it was, but like last last night's um, presidential debate, which was the the one with. Um, Biden v. Harris. Yeah. I, I was just a side note. Um, I was watching the last one we were watching with my son and he came in and said, like, he's three. He's like, you're watching this again? Because like, it, it was like, it was like, it was like, is this a, re- is this yeah. a rerun? And it did make me realize, like, there is a limit to, like, screen time. Like, there, there's something that, like, they will not watch. And he was like, this is too too boring even for me to, like, look at a screen. Um, but, but anyway, in the debate on um, on Wednesday night, um, Michael Bennett sort of said, like, why are we talking about something that happened 50 years ago? Like, schools are more segregated than ever. You know, like, let's look at only to the present. And I think that I, I totally understand that mindset. And, like, I think that there's – or this idea that, like – and I think it absolutely is important to think about that the, the, how persistent school segregation is. But I think one of the things that that does is not actually think about what are the factors that led to um, – have led to these persistent problems um, and that those are deeply, deeply structural. Um, and so the busing, busing is a symbol of that happening. But I think the same thing that happens if you only sort of think about racism in terms of white working class people saying – making particular kinds of comments, it actually obscures like all the other ways that many other people are involved in practices and patterns that produce racial inequality. And, and there's an emphasis on language rather than systems. Not that people should use racist language by no means, but there's an emphasis on that to the exclusion of deeply systemic violence and exclusion. Yes. And I think and I think if you and when you take a broader view of what violence violence is, that like violence is also about kind of types of exclusion from particular places, access to kind of different kinds of education, different kinds of like actual sort of um, theft of property, theft of other kinds of things. I mean, that's that's all part of it. And I do think that there's been a, one of the things that in our contemporary moment of kind of only focusing on these kind of racist comments that come out constantly, that there's not always like looking to those types of things. Um, and I think that that's not by everyone, but I do think that that's been a big, a big question, particularly among um, many people who are, who've deeply privileged or to become or privileged by this system. So um, there's not a kind of coming to terms with some of those larger things. And that's been just played out again and again. Well, yeah, it, it's something that I'm dealing with a lot in in my book where there's a sort of encounter with the uncanny for liberals where Trump, for all of his just disgustingly open white nationalism, has so far failed to even get close, according to the most recent data, to the number of deportations achieved by Obama, who obviously would never use such language. Yeah, I think and that's I think it's it's amazing. I mean, I also wonder if that's, some of that's also from incompetence. Um, but um, but um, <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> but, um, but I think that um, there's a. Um, but I th- but it goes to I mean that's and and how much focus has been on those two on the language and not on the um on the structures is a really important thing and sort of plays out time and time again and I think it is really important of who that who that um lets off the hook to some degree um is always the question I guess I'm I'm like deeply invested in and constantly kind of trying to look at this narrowly attitudinal and linguistic conception of racism you write ha- has deep roots in liberalism embodied by Gunnar Myrtle's classic book, An American Dilemma. The reaction against Metco, however, also made me think a lot about this Jacksonian conception of negative liberty, whereby freedom means government non-interference, specifically government non-interference in the power of people to repress others. And along these lines, you quote 
a mother from the town of Dedham, quote, if you start losing one of your freedoms, that's the beginning of the end. Is it fair to say that that liberal anti-racism was always embedded in this more right-wing libertarian tradition and that this is what facilitated these diversity-friendly liberal suburbs into tax-revolting reactionaries so quickly? Well, I think there's a gradation. I mean, I think that there's, on the one hand, like, I don't think that all the liberal people sort of were... were Core activists were certainly aghast. When yes. Like, and I think there's, like, there's gradations in kind of the, the politics. I do think, I mean, that goes back to the kind of your original questions about kind of suburban politics. And I'm always interested in these places where um, the left and the right meet or liberalism or the, the traditional labels we use for things break down. Like, so I often think like people talk about the, the suburbanites I study as conservative. It's where you can't, those, la- those labels actually don't necessarily work. I do think there's a focus on this kind of notion of freedom and freedom from government intrusion um, or in government intrusion when it's going to affect me that you start to see. And so the, the way that I think about suburban liberal politics is kind of on a scale that like it's it's they're the the people tend to be the most liberal on the issues that are the furthest away from their um their property taxes, their property values and their kids education. And so that's when you start to see this kind of sense of kind of don't let the government kind of tread on me that I think is has this kind of liber this this does have this like sort of profoundly libertarian impulse um that starts to play itself out. So to me it's actually I mean I think it's it's about a kind of a self-interest and an individualism that um, has been largely supported and predicated by government, like sort of government structures and government functions. So the, the ability to have that kind of sense of freedom and this notion of kind of government don't tread on me is only possible because of government programs that have allowed it to happen. So there's a really fascinating kind of contradiction that um, that occurs. And you can see that playing out. I, I think that that's true in a lot of the liberal places I study. It's what right. I, from what I know of, you know, I've spent a lot of time studying conservative politics too. And I think you absolutely see it playing itself in, in, a, in a range of different kind of conservative politics as well. And I think today this informs this liberal reaction to Trump, and it, I think it was the same under Bush in a lot of ways too, that that the news is so depressing. It makes me feel bad to read about. I'm not, my life hasn't really changed, but it makes me feel bad. And so I'm going to move to Canada or at least say I am or support CalExit or whatever. Yeah, I mean, you can kind of, there's some kind of way that you have the freedom or privilege to kind of remove yourself from the system. It does have this, like, this sort of sense of a privileged perspective that play out um, in all in all kinds of ways, or that there's some, some kind of capacity to kind of remove yourself from governance, um, which is sort of interesting. And to and, see politics as like one team versus the other, my team's out, it makes me feel bad, rather than... Yeah, I mean, and that's and that's actually, I mean, so the books, the title of my book is um, Don't Blame Us, which comes from this bumper sticker of Don't Blame Me, I'm from Massachusetts, which came out after McGovern, Massachusetts the only state to vote for George McGovern, after the, um, in the 1972 election. And it was this idea of like, look at us, we're so exceptional. Um, and therefore, like, I stand against the rest of the country, which I think does drive this kind of cultural politics. And, you know, these, these bumper stickers have reemerged. Now there's don't blame me. I'm from California has been coming out oh, after 2016. So God. I actually was just joking. I was like, oh. I should just write that as my next book project. Just and repeat. Yeah. Like a bla- like a, and one of my friends actually always jokes that I'm going to do like blame studies um, as my, as my area. But, um, but I think there's this, that like ethos of kind of um, this cultural notion of like, you can be removed from the rest of the country is really powerful and does, does feed to a particular kind of like li- liberal privilege but i think that you're absolutely right you can see playing out on the other on the other side as well 
But then again, the flip side to the the don't blame me, it's not my fault because I vote correctly. The flip side of that, in a way, is the way we fight racism is just by having these sort of consciousness raising sessions where I acknowledge my white privilege and there's tears and everything's okay. Yeah, I mean that's going to be the, the solution. Will be kind of indiv- that in that you can you can solve these by individual like an individual has the power to kind of solve these types of problems. Or if you sort of see or um you see you see those kinds of things. I think that there's been I, and I think that that's actually something that's been I've been fascinated in with the kind of discussion in the last few years. I think it's both in response to kind of Black Lives Matter and then also Trump um, amongst particular liberals, but sort of have that that kind of attitude. And I think it very you you can see the very much the kind of parallels um, amongst the people that I study. I think Kirsten Gillibrand's comments is, are kind of what what's informing my thinking here that 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 she you know using this sort of language as a privileged white woman that she can help convince convert white suburbanites into understanding what racism really is. Right. I mean, that, that, and I thought that was absolutely like a great, that, that, and that's, that's going to be, that's going to solve the problem too. I mean, I also thought the other thing that that comment got at, um, was a way of, of thinking about what the suburbs are, um, as like this very much frozen in time. So not thinking about things like suburban diversity and how, Mm -hmm. um, and how there are many more poor people who live in suburbs today than in, in central cities. So it like sort of played up this kind of particular kind of cultural notion of suburbia that is built into that as well. So that, the, but um, absolutely. Relatedly, your book helped me think through what to me has become a very muddled debate about racism and economics in the economy since Trump's election. The debate has revolved around the question of whether economic anxiety motivated working class whites to vote for a racist. When, when in fact, to me, your work along with Theta Scotchpaul's work on the Tea Party and Mike Davis's work on California tax revolts and, and so much else, what it shows is that we need a much more complex way to think about the way that economics and economic crisis shape racist politics, not just in terms of the so-called white working class, but also in terms of middle class reaction. What's your take on the current debate and what's a better analysis? Well, I think there's always this sense. I mean, so I mean, I think you can never fundamentally separate race and economics. They're always just so fundamentally intertwined. But I think that one of the things that ends up happening is particularly in moments of crises that it sort of comes into this internal sort of focus on your um, on yourself. Um, and so, in my book project, the kind of moments where you see the kind of limitations of liberalism of suburban liberalism really playing itself out are in the 1970s during the the economic re- recession and crisis and i think that there's an a- that there's absolute sort of parallels to that happening today i mean even though the stock market is i guess as good as it's ever been or whatever it is i mean it's like booming that there is this real sort of sense of economic anxiety and i think that in those kinds of moments we start to see sort of different types of racial constellations play out and it isn't just that it's not just the tea party it's this sense of kind of holding on to your um what what is you're individually entitled to as an upper middle class suburbanite um and especially like this i think the notions of i've worked hard for the particular things i have and it's really hard to hold on to them and so i need to sort of fight further and ever for myself and i actually think the place that that becomes the most dominant is around around schools and kids education amongst kind of a particular type of suburban or or knowledge you know sort of knowledge worker upper uh, upper middle class kind of person you can see those kinds of attitudes play out so there's like heavily heavily racialized attitudes around around those kinds of questions of schools that I do think 
is rooted in this kind of sense, a, a deeper sense of in many ways more an economic anxiety of kind of wanting the best for your child, but that gets played out in, in heavily racialized ways. I, I want to talk about about children and families. I meant to talk about this more earlier when we were talking about open housing, because you write that open housing activists emphasized that the black people they wanted to move in were black professionals with a deep commitment to domesticity and the family. And you write that they tried to reassure people that, quote, the fair housing committees did not aim to recruit dangerous and deviant single black bachelors or welfare mothers, which are large number with a large number of children into the suburbs and instead sought safe and stable middle class families. What role did the family play in liberal suburban political ideology and and how did that in turn shape its race, class, and gender politics? Well, I think this is another place that you sort of going back to the kind of new built into the New Deal state is this, perf- this sort of profoundly gendered and family family oriented ideology of particular kinds of sort of focusing on on families as um, and I think from an economic perspective it has to do with the kind of uh, families as as more stable. So that's sort of playing out at the st- at the sort of national in terms of national political economy, but I think you can very much see that sort of disseminated at the local level too, of this notion of sort of people, families are heteronormative, families are safer in some capacity. And I think especially thinking about, so those examples that you use um, when you're sort of concerned about for a lot of suburban suburban residents. I mean, so one of the things we didn't talk about, we talked about for housing is the, a lot of the concern about having African-Americans move in was this fear of property values going down. But this idea of that sort of the way to keep property values stable is by having sort of stable people near you and family, sort of two heteronormative family living next door with two kids and the dog and all of that, like is the more stable, stable reference. And so I think that is a fundamentally built into kind of particular ideas of liberalism. I should say, I mean, I think this is a lot of this has to do with the kind of spatial dimensions of the suburbs. And the suburbs themselves were built for families that you have a single family home. I mean, it's really hard to live. It's still really hard to live in the suburbs if you're as a, as a single person or in, in any kind of non-normative constellation. So that only fueled that kind of notion of kind of family. But um, but I do think at the heart of the kind of suburban politics, and this is something that, that is, plays out on both the left and the right is like really powerful ideas of family and children. One of the things the book wanted to argue and and I think about a lot is that that's not, there's often this kind of focus of sort of family politics as being something of the right, but I think it's absolutely something that um, that liberals, um, liberals sort of personify in all different kinds of ways. This is Sarah Jaffe, and you are listening to The Dig with Daniel Denver, my favorite podcast for thoughtful discussions on the U.S. left and beyond. And you can support it on Patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters at Patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is American Breakdown, The Trump Years and How They Befell Us, by David Bromwich. Donald Trump's residency in the White House is not an accident of American history, and it can't be blamed on a single cause. In American Breakdown, David Bromwich provides an essential analysis of the forces in play beneath the surface of our political system. His portraits of political leaders and overarching narrative bring to life the events and machinations that have led America to a collective breakdown. The political conditions of the present crisis were put in place over 50 years ago, with the expansion of the Vietnam War and the lies and cover-ups that brought down Nixon. Since then, 
every presidency has further centralized and strengthened executive power. The truly catastrophic event was the invention by George W. Bush and Dick Cheney of the War on Terror, designed to last for generations. Barack Obama's practice of reconciliation without truth, sparing CIA torturers and Wall Street bankers, deepened the distrust and anger of voters who rallied around Trump. An unsparing account of the degradation of U.S. democracy, American breakdown is essential to our evaluation of its prospects. Arguing that Trump's re-election seems just as likely as impeachment, Bromwich turns his attention to the new struggles within the Democratic Party on immigration, foreign policy, and the Green New Deal. American breakdown will be a crucial reference point in the political debate around the upcoming presidential election a contest in which the forces that created Donald Trump show little sign of letting up. American Breakdown, The Trump Years and How They Befell Us, by David Bromwich, out now from Verso Books. One thing that made Route 128 suburbanite liberals different from their conservative counterparts is the way way they saw their communities and homes as creative, bespoke, and even artisanal. In contrast to standard cookie-cutter sprawl. And this was, you write, a self-serving aesthetic critique of mass society that helped them see themselves as not systematically determined by the socioeconomic order, but really just kind of like self-actualizing uh, people on the on the suburban frontier. And this, you write, helped lay the groundwork for the anti-sprawl movement, which included good things like support for the urban civil rights movement against highway construction that was rampantly destroying poor and working-class neighborhoods everywhere at the time. But the obsession with protecting pastoral suburban landscapes also created a new pretext to fight substantive housing desegregation in the form of constructing low-income housing in the suburbs. My question is, how did suburban privatism shape suburban environmentalism? And then in turn, how did this self-interested brand of environmentalism bolster suburban privatism? One of the things I mean, I think that I was trying to do in the book and um, came to is like this notion of environmentalism as being like an automatic good. I mean, there's often this idea that like everything environmental is like is overwhelmingly positive. And that's a kind of a particular ethos of a lot of these these kind of communities. I mean, and one of the things that I wanted to do too is to sort of think about how they intersect with other environmentalism itself intersects with other kinds of inequalities. There's a lot of discussion of kind of environmental um, environmental justice and environmental racism, but this is sort of thinking about it in a slightly different way. Several of the studies, suburbs I study are um, that existed already as kind of with this particular kind of, as you said, pastoral ch- charm. Places like Lexington and Concord had a kind of historic, also had a like sort of like a historic weight and historical meaning with that as well. Um, and that drove, that did attract a particular kind of suburban resident, like with this idea that those places were sort of imbued with a, with kind of, with particular kind of liberal values. Um, but it also became like this notion of kind of wanting to live in a place that was not kind of mass society. I mean, so it looked like places like Levittown, like that there was a kind of distinctive quirky charm and then also that they had a lot of open, um, open space and open protection. So there's a big movement um, in the 1950s and 1960s to kind of preserve open space from encroaching this kind of sense of encroaching sprawl. And that that is not 
you know, there's many as has been widely studied. Like, there's many environmental consequences to um, to sprawl to sprawling areas. But what that did in in these kinds of these communities like Lexington and Concord, or another one is as the um, community of Lincoln, was to um, limit the to to sort of really limit um, the amount of space where where any kind of building could occur, and also in um, heighten the exclusivity of their community. So it made the property values go up because also if you have less people living there. You have less that that also reduces the um, the local tax rate, the demand for services, all that kind of thing. What ends up happening um, in this community? So the open space movement, as you said, like they do they do work in coalition with African Americans and working class um, working class people within within Boston, um, which is an interesting kind of counterpoint to the busing story, to stop the the building of a large highway. But at the same time, um, it also becomes a, a mechanism f- for stopping things like affordable housing from being constructed. Um, and so, one of the big fights that happens in the town of Concord is over sort of this building on a, an area that um, was deemed kind of environmentally vulnerable um, and should be protected. One of the things in that fight to me is always that like why was that the only land in the community that you could build on was like it was an area that was like sort of environmentally vulnerable because everything else had been sort of built up or had been protected or um or was exclusive so those are the kinds of fights that get pit- pitted that happen but oftentimes affordable housing and this happens in the suburbs i study but happens writ large nationally um become fought on environmental grounds this kind of anti-sprawl anti-sprawl ethos and i think that it is really important. well if that was the only place left it was because in large part, all these people were in single-family homes on these enormous. Lots. Yeah, and they weren't changing their they weren't changing their zoning policies to say you have to sort of like you know I mean there there was a law that was passed the anti snob zoning act but that was only about new construction so there's not there's not an effort to kind of to say like hey you who lives on like a one acre plot of land like why don't you subdivide your land and build it have an affordable housing unit units be put in there or anything like that. So I think that you started to see that's the kind of, those are the kinds of um, consequences. And I do, I do think to your, the question that you see um, environmentalism and this notion of privatism going, um, becoming absolutely going sort of hand in hand and becoming sort of mutually constitutive um, in a lot of kind of these affluent communities. They're, they are beautiful, still beautiful in a lot of ways. Um, and they still have a lot of their land preserved. But one of the questions is sort of at what cost? In terms of the cost, perhaps the most most breathtaking example of suburban environmentalism, and I, I would even maybe not can think of it as environmentalism because I think environmentalism should necessarily be universal and about the the totality of of, of ecosystems. Looking at things like like global warming, maybe may more conservationism. Right. Yeah, I think it is. <laughs> My, so it is like an, it's more of a conservationist ethos, and I think that's where it comes from too. The most mind-blowing example in your book of this, of this sort of conservationism as a pretext for racist class war politics, was a successful fight against the extension of the MBTA's red line subway into the western suburbs. Instead, it got made into a bike path, today known as the Minuteman Bikeway. How was it that a project that would have been both environmentally beneficial and socially just got supplanted by a project for elite recreation? Well, it was this idea that it was going to be bad. I mean, it, I think there are a couple that people really fought this notion. So there's that they they went win a fight against building a super highway, and that gets rerouted. And the idea that they're going to they're going to build um, mass transit and actually connect an existing t- uh, train line subway line to um, out to actually the Route 128 area, which would have provided a lot of people access to jobs. I mean, access to transportation to their jobs. A lot of it became that this was going to be this was going to bring people from the city 
out into this, like out into our um, suburban areas. That's one of the reasons they fought it. That was the more overtly kind of racialized component of it. But it also became yeah, the word jungle was invoked. Yeah, the, by <laughs> there was some, some discussion of jungle. Um, but there was also this notion that um, this would drive down property values. That um, the environmental consequences would be that you'd you'd be digging up a lot of um, a, a lot of land, such to produce this highway, and that would sort of have environmental consequences. Not thinking about the kind of lar- larger environmental consequences of the fact that you know having um, people use mass transit as opposed to using their cars um, or even using um, bus lines would have um, would have a profound like would would be much better for the environment. Um, but all of those kind of come to to preventing this kind of extension of the red line. I think one of the ironies is that um, one of the big fights was actually about property values and that it would have massively um, increased people's property values. I mean, now everyone wants to live near mass transit. So like had they had they like allowed the transit system to come in, um, it would have actually it, you know, now they're. Property values. They'd be even richer. <laughs> don't get. But I mean, it, but I think like I, this has been. Um, I will say that um, when your research sort of plays out in your own life, in my own, I live um, in um, Eagle Rock in LA, and there's been a huge fight here about adding a rapid transit bus line to go down the center of the main sort of area, um, which would which would be a major connector of people um, from to from access to jobs. And like one of the big fights is the the signs up all around Eagle Rock are like keep Eagle Rock green, and this notion that it's going to cut down trees if you allow for this bus route to come um, come in. And so it's just amazing to me these politics just constantly play out um, of sort of of thinking about that take the aesthetic of uh, 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 the aesthetics of individual trees as more important than keeping our carbon emissions to the point where we're not all destroyed. Yeah, and like that and allowing low income people access to um, who don't have who like who have uneven transportation access to jobs, but that's like that's beside the point. So I'm going to be I guess I'll be leading the fight against this. There's, it's just been insane to me when I drive around, or when, not when I when I walk in walk around my neighborhood and see all these signs. Anyway, that's a that's a side point. It reminds me, and just as a, as a side note for listeners who haven't heard it, my recent interview with Cafueato on public transit, there can very much be a problem where good public transmit transit investments drive increasing property values in a way that fuels gentrification. But the solution to that has to be around doing things like decommodifying housing not that public transit is is bad yeah i think that i know i think that's a huge set of questions um and and actually really important and kind of a lot of the discussions around transit right now but i think you can see it very much the sort of the early roots of that being played out in this um in this fight um over the red line and it's always it's actually quite depressing to people in boston because that that bike route is very very popular it's like actually one of the biggest problems now is overcrowding of the bike the bike route so many people who take the bike bike route um, to have to learn this kind of secret history of it has been sad, deflating. It seems like a, a central irony here is that in place of universalist environmentalism, they embrace this conservationism, which is all about wanting a quality of life haven to protect them from the very forces of industrial capitalism that created their wealth. They didn't want environmental justice or really even to protect nature as such. They wanted nature as a private luxury, which is then, in par- in turn, part of this whole gendered domestic sphere. As a kind of, that it, it operates as a private space. Yeah. And I think it's also not thinking about, I mean, it's actually, that's where it's not conservationist and it's not thinking about the collective good. It's only about sort of an individual, like constant, that's sort of early 20th century conservation ideology is like this larger kind of public, the, the larger public good and need for 
need for spaces. And this is about like my sort of private, my particular kind of private space that does sort of reconstitute some sort of public private public private sphere. Or also, I mean, another side of that is that many of these are people who are working in jobs that are like profoundly environmentally destructive, even if they're removed from that in various different ways. But those don't always, that's not always coming to the forefront as either. Yeah. And I mean, my point on the gendered domestic sphere is that this is all part and parcel of this broader divide under capitalism between the messy place where production happens and the the kind of haven that's protected, the feminized haven that's protected from it, um, which is in not only in the home, but in then with the suburban separation of home and work, you know, the, the entire suburban community. Yeah. And I, th- I mean, I think the other part of it is this, I mean, and that this notion that you can kind of use certain kinds of, and this goes to I guess also, to, I mean, mostly to the, the question of the powers of zoning and the power of sort of localism or privatism to to wall off various different things. And that what you see is that environmental environmental consequences to me are one of those ones that I mean, the class I mean, the classic that those pervade. They don't they don't abide by zoning law. So I mean, so, so like you're you're still you're still feeling very much the consequences of them. And so I think that that's the kind of separation can never can never f- fully exist. The other point, I mean, I think that is. To me, it also represents, um, and it's something I really want to emphasize in my book and emphasize my larger research, is that there's often this notion of kind of this separation of material from social, like sort of politics or interests, um, and environmentalism often gets put in a category as kind of social or kind of post-economic, and that for, to me, those categories just cannot be disaggregated. Um, and, and I think suburban liberals are a really powerful way of thinking about that. But I think especially like environment, that a lot of the reasons, the the sort of the reasons fueling um, environmental politics in these con- in this context was also material. As you said, it's like improving your mater- your quality of life. Um, and also you gain material benefits from it. And that's a that's a really sort of fundamental component of suburban liberal politics. Yeah, because because there's this this notion that neoliberal Democrats are are socially progressive but economically conservative, which for me is just one of the most wrongheaded pieces of conventional wisdom out there. Because it's not that that they abandoned economic justice for so-called social issues, because things like segregation, welfare reform, mass incarceration are incredibly simultaneously socially and economically reactionary. Yeah, well, and they also, I mean, to them too, they're, they're deeply embedded. And this is actually the subject of my um, my next book project is looking at the de- democratic neoliberalism in its particular forms. But I, And it's it's looking at it through the concept of the idea of doing well by doing good. Um, and this notion that you can actually combine those two things so that you use economic factors to um, to get at at social outcomes. And so I think that they themselves see them as um, deeply intertwined. And so trying to kind of identify these sort of false categories is somewhat – it's both futile, but it's also um, – it also can be detrimental to actually understanding it. One more question on conservation before we move on. You make this important point that suburbanites' approach to that – that, that the conservation – issue revealed that suburbanites' approach to taxation and government was very much shaped by what and who the tax money was spent on. You write, quote, the ease with which land acquisition measures passed in places such as Lincoln and Concord defies the assumption about the reflexive fiscal conservatism and anti-government sensibility of suburban residents. Rather, the support for open space purchases illustrates that the majority of citizens in the Route 128 suburbs, both Democrats and Republicans, 
and their counterparts in places like Westchester County and Marin County did support local, state, and federal expenditures, and even small increases in their tax rates, especially when it would increase their own property values, municipal services, and overall quality of life. And I I think that illuminates an important point about how politics in general works. The the Tea Party, for example, is often described as anti-tax and anti-big government. In fact, and going back to Theta Scotchball, research makes it clear that it's not about big or small government or high or low taxes so much as to what end and for whom the taxing and spending is happening, that the Tea Party is laser-focused on government spending that they see as benefiting undeserving people, immigrants, black people, young people. Were the 128 suburbanites there so different? I mean, I think that I think that it gets it's a really interesting question and I think a really important one for sort of understanding or thinking about um, these particular kinds of political ideologies more broadly. But I think it gets at this sort of profound sense of self-interest and the role of self-interest in driving um, particular kinds of po- of politics. And so I think that, that 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 you can see that in focusing on opposing particular interventions um, by government, but su- absolutely supporting other ones. And that plays that plays itself out both, I think, amongst these sort of suburban residents, these sort of suburban liberal or moderate residents, and then also amongst kind of more um, more conservative conservatives, both in the 1960s, 1970s, and then also um, in the more contemporary example of the um, the Tea Party. Um, but I do think it has to do with a kind of of the role of, of larger material self interest driving a lot of those kinds of that kind of worldview. I want to shift gears and discuss some other aspects of suburban liberal politics and how it all came together to help propel the neoliberal transformation of the Democratic Party, starting with the anti-war movement, which you write was was really big in the 128 suburbs, which might be surprising at first blush given the defense industry's central role in creating those suburbs' wealth. And remarkably, the, the idea for the massive October 1969 Vietnam moratorium, one of the most important demonstrations in U.S. history— came from a Newton envelope manufacturing executive. But you write that the very idea of characterizing the action as a moratorium instead of a strike reflected the movement's, or at least the sector of the movement's, elite leadership, which ultimately marginalized black and working class people whose children, I imagine, were dying at much higher rates. What motivated suburban anti-war activism? How was that activism shaped by suburban ideology? And how did their role in the movement ultimately limit its reach? Yeah, I mean, so this is the place where you can kind of see the the biggest success of suburban liberal activists is around um, is around anti-war politics. And I think especially sort of playing itself out both in terms of the moratorium and then also later um, the move, it becomes channeled into um, political action. And so helping to, to fuel the um, the candidacies of several um, of several sort of key politicians. But I think that, I mean, the, the roots of it, I think, actually get at this question of kind of the differences between the kind of more activist dimensions of suburb of suburban liberal politics, the sort of the, so the committed activists versus like the sort of there's sort of some more suburban counter 
counterparts. And there was a long tradition within these suburban areas of pacifism um, and so like a broader kind of um, pacifist movement um, that then sort of constitutes around opposition to the Vietnam War. I think that, I mean, it is is, like amazing that you have um, uh, at the sort of heart of the the military industrial complex. Yeah, is uh, is like a lot of people. So people had like their anti-war bumper stickers like on their cars at the like at Raytheon. Um, but um, but I think it was an uh, uh, this kind of that goes to this kind of notion of professional expertise and technocratic ideology of believing in the work that they were doing and thinking it was not going to good end. So like morally being opposed to the Vietnam War. Um, so it wasn't just sort of in there. And a lot of at least this is what I understand from what I read and came to from a lot of the engineers was that they weren't just committed to kind of building up military or other kinds of technological capabilities, like for the sake of using it, they wanted to be used for good ends. And they didn't think the Vietnam War was was that. And so that sort of fueled this kind of opposition to fuel this broader kind of opposition within um, particularly the kind of the engine, the kind of engineer side of the Vietnam War, who actually became quite active, many of them became really active in the movement. They then sort of have contribute to this idea of having the Vietnam moratorium. And it was it was the original idea of having this big sort of protest was started by these suburban activists in Massachusetts. And then they worked in coalition with student activists and also with um, the members of the labor movement. And they initially, the idea was to do a strike. That would be a one-day national strike um, against the Vietnam War to send a message to um, Nixon. And there was this idea among suburban liberals that that would be too militant and that that would turn off a lot of their kind of more moderate fellow residents. And so they decided to do this moratorium again. And the idea of the moratorium was you kind of could kind of do it in the ways you wanted. Like you could protest the war as you wanted. And it's seen as sort of this, I think one of the factors that made the moratorium so popular. I mean, it's a huge number of people participated. It is at the time it became the, the largest civil demonstration in American history. Um, but like lots of local communities, people did it all in their own kind of way. And so it wasn't a particularly kind of militant the kind of militant protests that we think of when often we think of the Vietnam War, it was a very kind of a lot of them were these kind of silent demonstrations. And it became so big. I mean, you have like a lot of Republicans got involved. The, the mayor of or the, sorry, the governor of Massachusetts at the time was a Republican. He was participating in the moratorium. There was a joke before it became so big. There was a joke that like Richard Nixon himself was going to participate in it um, <laughs> because it was like it became that like that big. Um, and um, and I think that that was it was became this powerful kind of I think one of the things that too became really powerful about it is that you do have all these sort of suburbanites, not just in Massachusetts, but across the country who voted for Nixon, who were protesting the Vietnam War or, or in their own way. Um, but it also sort of limited the capacity, I think, of it's more of a more of taking a, a sort of a stronger stance against the war. So there weren't like de- initially they were going to ask for demands like you have to withdraw by this date. And all of that was kind of taken out. So it became more of this kind of symbolic showing of, of what happened. And there also was not a lot of effort to, as as you mentioned, to include um, working class and um, and African Americans within the kind of um, organizing patterns, um, there was a little bit, but nothing. So that was not that that was not kind of part of the kind of message that was sent. And I think that that's one of the things that ends up happening is that there's this huge amount of suburban liberal activism in opposition to the Vietnam War, but very like very few of the children of um, suburban liberals um, or of like of, of the communities that I study um, were the people going to fight in the Vietnam War. Um, and so that created this, this kind of class blindness or class disconnect. Um, and so some of those kind of that suburban political ethos become sort of reconstituted within things like um, anti-war politics. Many anti-war suburbanites mobilized behind Eugene McCarthy's 1968 anti-war primary campaign 
And then that general election saw major suburban support for Democrat Hubert Humphrey amongst voters who had often supported moderate Republicans. And then that shift in turn was consolidated in 72 when Democratic nominee George McGovern failed to win any state, save for Massachusetts plus D.C., which led to these bumper stickers proliferating all over the state that say, don't blame me, I'm from Massachusetts. McGovern did do well with Massachusetts white working class voters, but you write that he was, quote, the first Democratic presidential candidate to do better with white collar than blue collar voters. And you argue that that McGovern wasn't the end of the 60s, but rather, quote, a precursor to the Democratic Party's growing commitment to knowledge workers and economic policies that touted the government's stimulation of private sector high tech industry. Democratic candidates Michael Dukakis, Paul Songus, Al Gore, and McGovern campaign manager Gary Hart all later refined many of the economic ideas about military reconversion proposed by McGovern. This is like a fascinating turn that you take at the end of the book. What role did the McCarthy and McGovern campaigns and the McGovern commission that McGovern led after the 68 elections, what role did that all play in setting this long-term trajectory, this sort of like deep and not very well-known history of of the neoliberal Democratic Party in motion? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's, um, so there's this effort to kind of challenge that McGovern is often seen as this, the sort of ultimate liberal who, um, who was like a big failed candidate. Um, it was used on Tuesday night to attack Bernie and Elizabeth Warren. Oh, I didn't, I missed that. I like missed a reference. So, I mean, but it is like in that he stood for the three A's of, um, of abortion acid and amnesty. Um, (laughs) and like, this is like, this goes on. I mean, it's still, I, I guess it's, it is still brought up. Um, but, um, I, I mean, some of this is to sort of show that he was not he was not quite as liberal or or, or that as that um, his reputation often is is there. But I think the other part is that they these are candidates, both McCarthy as well, whose base was really in um, amongst kind of these knowledge worker suburbanites, um, so that they did really well. Um, there's a huge outpouring from um, Eugene McCarthy within the, these suburban communities that then kind of gets built on to support um, McGovern. And I think that McGovern was someone who recognized the importance of these these particular kind of voters to his um, political success. And so this is, as I said, like one of the things the book is trying to do is to sort of show the shift, this reorientation of liberalism um, and the Democratic Party towards this these kind of knowledge worker suburbanites. And I think this is the moment you can really see it happening to the point of the the McGovern Commission, which is like one of those things that amongst political historians is like super talked about all the time and people get into the weeds on. I think it's like widely unknown amongst like the larger public. But after the 1968 election, there was a real sense of frustration amongst many people that Hubert Humphrey had had gotten the nomination, even though Eugene McCarthy had done really, really well. Um, and so there was a sense to kind of re-understand the nomination process and particularly the kind of the primary and delegate selection process. And so there, McGovern be- himself becomes head of the um this commission that goes around the country to kind of think about how they could reconstitute the selection of um, presidential candidates. I argue in my in the book is that one of the ways that the commission's sort of re 
the, the redesign was able to kind of give kind of suburban liberal activists, these kind of reformer type people, a lot of um, more ability to kind of control the Democratic Party and, and sort of more of a say. So it's supposed to get it, the idea was to kind of get the voices of more grassroots people. And you have a it's amazing who sort of came out as delegates, to the 1972 convention. Um, it's the largest number of people of color, largest number of women um, as convention activists, but a huge number of these kind of suburban liberal activists themselves run as delegates and win. Um, in Massachusetts. And this is supposed to be a de- move to democratize the party, but it's moving away from groups with mass constituencies like organized labor to these Route 128 suburbanites in many ways. Yes, absolutely. And so, I mean, I think one of the things that they were really frustrated by with someone like Humphrey is that they were, that the way that the party was doing things was was corrupt and that like it gave too much power to special interest groups, um, especially labor. And so that this was going to help to kind of make the party more de- democratized and also representative of of, of its um, constituencies. But it's seen as this real shift actually away from the kind of central position of labor and a, a sense of the Democrat, that's who de- the Democratic Party was key constituency was to these other kinds of um, these other groups. And I think that that's something McGovern recognized early and then also really cultivated um, these kinds of knowledge workers as part of his um, 1972 campaign. So it's not just that they supported him because they hated Nixon or because of like the sort of the flaming liberal politics, but it was also because he was really speaking to them. He ran a campaign that was about a big, a big part of it was about converting military, um, the uses of, of military funding and military act uh, research and to things like high tech and like more environmentally friendly um, practices. And that was really appealing. So you, I do think you see within that a kind of shift in the party's particularly sort of economic priorities towards that kind of model of um, a model of growth and away, away from a kind of industrial and manufacturing idea of kind of, of economic growth that would be more favorable to unionized people, sort of union, the unionized sector. I mean, one of the things that's about high tech is that it's those sectors are um, heavily non-unionized. So that's some of the, the sort of shift that you see happening. And I think that that what I set up is that since the 1970s, the Democratic Party, every presidential candidate has focused on cultivating that particular kind of um, voter, um, both in their kind of turnout and also in a lot of their policies. I want to get to to that more in a minute, but but just to close out the next kind of step in this trajectory, you identify Massachusetts governor and 1988 Democratic presidential nominee Michael Dukakis, who incidentally is my first political memory, as a next big step in this shift. Dukakis was a Route 128 technocrat. He lived in Brookline. He declared when he, I think at the convention maybe, quote, this election isn't about ideology. It's about competence. And You write that Democrats like Dukakis, quote, offered an alternative middle ground between the urban ethnic old guard of the Democratic Party and progressive constituencies like the Rainbow Coalition advocating for social equality and economic justice. Who was Dukakis? What did he do as Massachusetts governor? And who were the Atari Democrats that he was a leading representative of? So, so Mike Dukakis was like sort of a classic kind of technocratic reformer. Um, I think that was another thing about the kind of the people who supported McGovern. It was his faith in kind of reforming the system. And he actually emerged. I mean, the initial name for them is the Watergate Babies. It's this group of Democrats who came into office in 1974 um, in Congress and also at, at the state level and sort of in the aftermath of Watergate. But their big thing was kind of against corruption and making government. Initially, it was making government more efficient. 
and effective. And then, I mean, they co- this co- sort of coincides with the global recession of the 1970s. Um, and they sort of turn to these, these mechanisms of producing new means of producing growth that they need to, that, that the economy's in crisis and that like the old system of both kind of standing up that, that like the old, old types of democratic politics shouldn't operate or don't operate anymore, but the old kinds of systems of, of democratic political economy aren't working. Like Keynesian economics is not working. So they turned to a much more kind of high, this notion of sort of high tech. And a lot of them were from high tech areas. So Dukakis is from Massachusetts. And so one of his big things was kind of what can we do to kind of to bolster and, and boost the high tech industry. And that becomes a large part of his kind of um, his politics, both in the ni- beginning of the 1970s, but really in the 1980s. And so the big thing that kind of leads him into winning the nomination was this notion of the kind of Massachusetts miracle, this huge sort of turnaround, this high tech turnaround of the Massachusetts economy that occurs. And he sort of his idea was that I can promote that everywhere. And so he's part of this kind of tradition of democratic politicians who, who initially come into office in, in, in the 1970s and then become kind of known by this title of the Atari Democrats for their sort of embrace of high tech as the solution to the nation's economic problems. And so the other ones um, are people like Gary Hart, Tim Worth, and famously Al Gore. And that is kind of behind their kind of their mission. And I think, you know, I think that that one of the things that's happened, there's been a lot of because so much of the sort of focus has been on the failures of the Democratic Party um, and, and the kind of discussions and literature, there ha- um, there hasn't been a lot of emphasis about their sort of importance and kind of symbolizing and leading the kind of transformation of the Democratic Party during this period. So that's what I was trying to show. And the, the final part of the book was trying to show Dukakis as representing that, um, that kind of transformation. And you write that Dukakis was also a leading figure in terms of this sort of like combined social and economic neoliberalism. He pushed welfare reform that ultimately I think became, I don't know if literally the model, but an inspiration for the destruction of welfare as we knew it by Bill Clinton and congressional Republicans in 1996. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the, I mean, I think one of the things that's important about the Atari, um, the kind of Atari Democrats or this type of, of person is they still believed in kind of in broader notions of uh, they, they, when they, what, what like Gary Hart famously said is like the, it's basically that the principles don't change, but the, the methods do. Um, so they believe that they're sort of still, they, they have this longstanding commitment to kind of equality and opportunity that were at the heart of the Democratic Party, but they want to sort of change the methods of getting there. And so they turn to much more market-based mechanisms such to um, such to do to get to these these points. And this is this is very much I ended up realizing I was trying to write my um, my second book and my first book. So this is very much the focus of my second project. But so I've, I've been thinking a lot about these kinds of issues. But the question with Dukakis and welfare, one of the things that Dukakis institutes in the 1970s is is one of the first welfare to work programs. Um, there's actually a workfare program that um, Reagan Reagan institutes in, in California in the 1960s. But um, but California or sorry Massachusetts becomes one of the, the first states to to start this program. And I think one of the things about it, I mean, it does actually fit in with this this larger idea of kind of providing opportunity, jobs. I mean, that this is going to be the kind of this is the me- this is the means that you're giving people the ability to work as opposed to um, to sort of just living on. The, the idea was just that people are like living on the dole. And I think the other part of it is that it was seen as um, a more efficient mechanism of, of government control, of, of sort of government action. So that's sort of at the heart of how it fits in with this kind of democratic ethos of people like Dukakis. 
and then gets sort of gets gets realized at the national level by Clinton in the 90s. Yeah, and it powerfully lives on today. Unfortunately, we see with with Kamala Harris and others emphasis, kind of description of their own neoliberalism as pragmatism in contrast to progressive idealism, which is kind of camouflage as a political distinction as one between useless utopianism and a pragmatic get things done approach, you know, but but that we all agree on the same principles, which is not true, but that's how it's framed. And one of the things I think that's really important, I mean, so I, and the word pragmatic is actually like that's another one that's like chalk through of this kind of this kind of politics. Um, but I mean, that's one of the things that that like the people like Dukakis want to do is to make is to sort of impose a particular kind of pragmatic approach. And I think that one of the things that they start to an efficient approach, and one of the things that they start to see is the market is is a is an efficient means. Um, and that's something that, that is appealing to this kind of the suburban liberal knowledge workers that I've studied is they also believe in kind of efficiency. And sort of pragmatism, and so you can see. I mean, that's and that continues to play itself out um, in these kinds of these particular kinds of politics. Bill Clinton said something. I think it was in nineteen. I don't remember exactly when, but like we are a nation, something like we are a nation of immigrants, but we will not tolerate those whose first act upon entering this country is breaking the law. Yeah, I know it's it's incredible. I mean, those and but I think and that that like I think that 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 idea is um, is a really powerful notion that I like I, I do think actually falls in line with these particular kind and I, I think that sort of appeals to a particular kind of suburban resident as well. Speaking of and appealing to suburban residents, you, you wrote this really stellar New York Times op-ed last June with Matthew Lasseter, who I'll be interviewing soon, on this establishment neoliberal Democrat obsession with beating Trump by winning the suburbs, which was Clinton's failed strategy in 2016, of course, but whose advocates say has now been vindicated by the 2018 midterms, you two wrote, quote, the electoral success of that strategy has has previously been modest. And more important, the party has paid insufficient attention to the substantial policy costs of turning moderate and affluent suburbs blue. Democrats cannot cater to white swing voters in affluent suburbs and also promote policies that fundamentally challenge income inequality, exclusionary zoning, housing segregation, school inequality, police brutality, and mass incarceration. And I think this is a really important argument. You write that the the realignment of American politics during the post-civil rights neoliberal era was not just Republicans exploiting an anti-liberal backlash, but also this whole transformation of the Democratic Party that we've been talking about that Democrats actively made happen, Democrats' suburban strategy. What is it that Democrats still want from the suburbs? And what does your history reveal about its peril? Well, I think that Democrats still see suburban voters as sort of crucial to their ability to win um, win elections. I mean, one of the things about suburban voters, and and, and when you have um, Matt on, he can talk to you much more about this because he looks much more at sort of these quintessential sort of suburban moderate voters, um, but that they are sort of classic swing voters. And so in a kind of two-party system, and we've had these really close elections, like these these are sort of these are voters who are key to kind of winning winning elections um, for Democrats, and they have been a kind of they have been a sort of crucial component to Democrats' ability. I do think to win some slim elections um, over the past thirty years. 
So that's kind of going back to this particular strategy. And so one of the things that Matt and I were talking about in the piece is that 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 there are some sort of short, there can be some short-term gains to that or short-term benefits, but that there are long-term policy consequences if you actually want to pursue a progressive agenda. Um, and I think that this and is- And I would things- add long-term political consequences because making them the center of the coalition- makes it harder to make other people. Absolutely. And I think that that's one of the things that it's that it, you can so you, it might be that you win you win a few, you win some suburban voters in, in the election but you alienate large swaths of the population at other points. And I think this is going to be a, I mean I think this is something that's come out time and again and it's absolutely going to be a crucial question as turning into 2020. I think one of the things like the misinterpretation of the piece in some ways, or what at least I heard from some people, is like we weren't saying like you should actively do everything you can not to win those voters. <laughs> to, like to, I think that was like the way it was. Yeah, rights. like I don't think it's like what can we do to like make suburbanites as angry as possible so they will like stay home or something. I don't know what the but it was that if you actually care about like some of the policy promises or want to even make those part of your agenda and have sustained kind of equality, it's going to be very hard to do so um, with making those voters the sort of center of of the strategy. Um, And I think this strategy was very much sort of was seen as kind of what won, um, like flipped all of these these districts, these congressional districts um, from red to blue. And there's sort of danger in kind of using that as the kind of the the model for going forward, that that's the only way you can kind of win, um, win election, win elections, because I think it misses that it's not to me, it's also it's not just about elections. It's also about the kind of policy, the sort of the what policies um, are there. And it's very hard to do getting elected for what? (laughs) <laughs> exactly. I mean, that's the thing. I think that's the thing. I mean, that's. The, I mean, I think one of the places it's going to be really played out going forward is around healthcare, trying to win a more progressive healthcare agenda with suburban. When you have suburban, and you're also trying to win suburban moderate voters, or you have those as the kind of center of your political strategy, are incompatible. Like, will become sort of somewhat increasingly incompatible. Right, which is why Bernie and Warren's emphasis is on a different mobilization strategy of increasing turnout amongst the working class, a diverse working class base. Yes. And like that's, the th- I mean, I think that's the thing. And then there's been the, like the inattention to kind of that as a, as a strategy or not just thinking about this in sort of reactionary terms, but as a more, I mean, that's the part of the more progressive as a more proactive agenda going forward. And I think that that's, there's one of the things I think is often unfortunate is that like when someone, lo- when a candidate loses, you don't look to their political strategy. Mm-hmm. But like one person I thought was really, did a, I mean, did a really effective job at this is Stacey Abrams in Georgia of trying to kind of like that she wasn't trying to like piss off suburban voters, but she like had a much more pro progressive set of policies and also tried to reach out to different kinds of constituencies who weren't who who were traditionally non-voters. The last thing I I, I want to talk about before we we close up is another moment in your book that really had long-term implications through through politics today, which is the the individual rights-based liberal feminism that took really strong root in Boston suburbs amongst former, often amongst former housewives who were once the volunteer base for the fair housing and anti-war movements, but who entering the former workplace were joining now and campaigning for the Equal Rights Amendment. Explain this white affluent liberal suburban feminism and how it influenced the fights for the ERA and for abortion rights. And then more broadly, how it has shaped this longer-term trajectory that brought us the sort of lean-in liberal elite feminism championed by the likes of Sheryl Sandberg and Hillary Clinton. Well, I think that one of the things, I mean, that looking to 
suburban feminism is this to sort of one of the things it sort of gets at is the persistence of liberal activism in the 1970s and that a lot of it becomes there was this notion like after the end of the anti-war movement that like there was no more activism but it became reconstituted around different things and a lot of these activists who had been involved I mean a, a lot of the, the people that I looked at were women um, who'd been involved in things like anti-war fair housing movements they, they sort of remo- re- they move into um, suburban feminism I looked at how they sort of use a lot of the same kind of tactics and worldview in their kind of feminist politics. And so they're effective, again, at getting laws passed. So that's one of the things like suburban activists are very effective at um, working through the political system, that they, they have a lot of political clout, they're, they're savvy, but that a lot of what they did was kind of reproduce this kind of notion, these particular notions of individualism. I think some of this was sort of spatially constituted too. I mean, that one of the ideas of kind of, there's a collective emphasis the collective sort of component of feminism but so things like sort of consciousness raising about sort of coming together and sort of um and and working working things out but a lot of that was done kind of at the local level and so like the suburban liberal consciousness raising happened amongst suburban white liberals and often didn't involve other kinds of people so their notion of of woman or the kind of the feminism became naturalized to sort of white white suburban feminists and um not thinking about the kind of experiences of other of other kinds of groups. So I think like spatially, they weren't sort of interacting with those with women of color, um, many low income women. And so that sort of affected their their approach. But I think that and I and the place that you really see this playing out is around abortion politics. And as the um, the right to abortion became increasingly chipped away at in the 1970s, especially among um, the people, the most kind of vulnerable populations um, with things like the passage of the Hyde Amendment and other kinds of um, other kinds of laws, there becomes this kind of narrowing of, of this question of um, feminism around choice and this notion of cho- sort of a choice feminism, which I saw very much the sort of suburban liberal activists I looked at emphasize. And one of the things that that does is kind of both narrows feminism to being just about a, a, a abortion politics, but also limits kind of who has access to choice and that choice itself is a form of privilege. And it narrows abortion politics as well. It makes it not about reproductive freedom, but about choice. The ability to, yes, I actually think those things become mutually reinforcing, like this notion of like the way that abortion politics about choice is then sort of carried out about, I have the choice to do what I that I want. And that is the sort of feminist, it's not even third wave at this point, I guess, lean in feminism of people like Sheryl Sandberg, which sort of is this notion of like normalizing the experiences of upper middle class white, like seat, like Facebook executives to stand in for like all, you know, very, all, very representative situations. <laughs> exactly. Um, of all of like all, um, all women in the United States and like that everyone has that, that capability or like if they do, you know, and so sort of free of other kinds of constraints play itself out. So it is like, I mean, I think it's not, it sort of um, excludes kind of thinking about the kind of vast spectrum of different kinds of experiences, but also how those kinds of politics, like that particular kind of feminism actually like reproduces certain kinds of inequalities. But by the same token, you write that working class Boston anti-busing activists became core members of the anti-ERA movement, which you write, quote, helped to combine the issues of busing, abortion and anti-feminist and anti-liberal sentiments. Why was it that fights over the family synthesized white working class reaction in Boston? And then how does that compare to liberal suburbanites' own orientation towards a politics centered on perpetuating the value of their children and property into the future? They take very different political forms, but share some very fundamental similarities in their emphasis. 
Yeah, I think it's about, I mean, this notion of the rights to protect your your own individual family become a really dominant mechanism for um, a sense of kind of political worldview that I think, uh, as you said, is part of the kind of suburban ethos in the 50s, but very much plays itself out um, in from the 1970s going forward. And I think this is something that um, Robert Self's book All in the Family looks at extensively, mm-hmm. I think, especially on the right. But I think that you do see this kind of these kinds of liberal politics around family being really powerful. And that is this kind of driving this driving force of like, that's the reason I care about my property values or my kid or like having my kid go to a, um, you know, a highly privileged but segregated school because like it's I'm doing it for my family. So it's it's actually like in that and that um, it's a, it's the same kind of um, ethos. And I think there's, you know, it's interesting Like there is this kind of dismissive dimension of focusing on that as a um, on the right and not acknowledging the kinds of ways that family actually does drive liberal politics in all kinds of ways as well. You end by writing that a new generation of young knowledge workers moving into cities are in some ways recapitulating their parents' suburban politics. What are the sort of private liberal elite politics here that that you're critiquing and warning against and, and seeing around you in perhaps neighborhoods like Eagle Rock or your home city of Cambridge? Well, I think, I mean, I think one thing is that this isn't about just as kind of spatially defined or, or centered su- suburban politics. In some ways, it's more about this kind of this, the sort of power of knowledge workers. And I think one thing that's happened is that like for many years, the problem was like not having the the resources of middle class elites in in suburb in urban areas. But the ways that it's now there's been this like influx in the last 20 or 30 years has reproduced patterns of inequality in metropolitan in cities. And then also I think metropolitan landscapes more broadly. I mean, there's been this huge effort, this huge like driving out of low income people from um, from urban areas. But at the same time, I think there's also been this kind of it's made urban areas highly, highly, ever more unequal. You know, the easiest way to think about this is kind of the, the, the thinking about gentrification, but or the, or the term gentrification, which I think contains a lot of other, a lot of else within it, is that there's also a kind of blindness. Like I, we talked about at the beginning about kind of suburban suburbanites moving to the suburbs and not understanding their role in producing systematic inequality. But I think you can kind of see the same thing being played out amongst this kind of these patterns of gentrification happening within in urban areas or kind of a, a, a cons- persistent sort of blindness and just sort of seeing it as an in- these as individual choices rather than part of larger, much larger set of uh, structures and patterns. Um, but absolutely, I mean, I think that the same kinds of fights over affordable housing are happening in Cambridge, where I grew up, that were happening like, you know, 30, 40 years ago. The same, the same fights over schools are happening in Brooklyn that were happening in and, and questions of kind of inter, integration that were happening in the suburbs of Boston in this 1960s and 1970s. Um, and this notion of it's not about like, I'm not racist, but like, I just want to protect my kids education becomes really, really powerful. So those are those are two ones that I see. I mean, this notion, and I think that those those themselves kind of reproduce all these types of patterns. So it's really important not to kind of just feel good about yourself because you don't live in the suburbs, but that like to constantly think about like everyone's complicit complicity in these sort of in these kinds of larger processes of of producing in inequity and I guess that's that's something that I constantly think about I don't know if I'm 
I think my students constantly think I'm a downer as they're all like getting ready to move to Brooklyn, but um, or, or LA. But that's, I mean, I think that's that's just part of the process. You're like, congratulations on your graduation, yuppies. <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> like, and they give me these like sad looks. So um, um, I'm like, you should just move back to the suburbs with your parents and like, <laughs> um, you'll save everyone a lot of problems. Well, Lily Geismer, thank you so much. Uh, thank you. This is wonderful. I'm, I'm so it's so it was so nice of you to give my book such a close, um, close attention. I'm, I'm grateful for it. Lily Geismer is an historian and the author of Don't Blame Us, Suburban Liberals and the Transformation of the Democratic Party from Princeton University Press. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that modern bourgeois private property is the final and most complete expression of the system of producing and appropriating products that is based on class antagonisms, on the exploitation of the many by the few. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinator is Julia Rock. Our senior advisor is Thea Riofrancos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio. And please find us wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, you can also leave us a nice review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. What also does that is you telling your friends about the show. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to help keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks is a big help. Hold up. 